Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part two of the disappearance of Asia Degree. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Last week, we talked about the kind of child Aisha was in the days leading up to her disappearance. We went over the last three sightings of Aisha, her father at 2.30 a.m., a truck driver at 3.30 a.m., and another vehicle at 4.15 a.m. We also discussed items found in a shed just a mile from where she was last seen, which included some candy wrappers, her Mickey Mouse hair bow, a pencil, a marker, and a small photo of a young girl. With everything left behind in that shed, the photo of the little girl seems to be the most open-ended question of all. Who was it and how did Asia get it? To this day, no one seems to know. There are going to be an endless amount of questions raised in Asia's case because there's so much mystery surrounding it, but that leaves a lot of room for discussion. The police have kept a lot of information close to the vest. For example, according to the Shelby Star, the sheriff stated that it was obvious that she had planned to leave on whatever journey she was on two to three days ahead of time. They know why it's obvious, but we don't. We could speculate that maybe the items packed away were only available to her at different times on different days, like maybe her school supplies were available on Friday, but that favorite pair of jeans wasn't available until Saturday because it was in the wash or something. We know that there were candy wrappers in the floor of the shed and that her grandmother had said Asia was excited about her Valentine's Day candy, so that's another date to add to the list of items packed. We don't know what made the sheriff come to the conclusion that Asia had obviously planned two to three days in advance, but what I can tell you is that they have utilized every resource available to them and then some, and I take their statements to the bank. In another quote from the Shelby Star, law enforcement stated that based on items found, they don't believe that Asia is on her original journey and that the reason she left isn't significant and doesn't really matter anymore. We discussed that a bit in the last episode. Knowing Asia had a plan in place, we had to ask what plan a nine-year-old girl would make, why, and with whom. Being nine with little to no resources, it seems pretty likely that she would have needed help. So who would have offered to help her leave her home in the middle of a cold and rainy night? We know that they found that picture of the little girl among Aisha's things and that no one has any idea who the little girl is. So who did Aisha think she was? With the evidence of Aisha in the shed, the police finally had something more to go on than the witness statements, which would have just led them south down Highway 18 with nowhere to go from there. Now, it was clear that Aisha had stopped somewhere. Either that or someone dumped a few of her items in that shed, but that doesn't seem to be a theory that holds much weight. With the shed being a solid new lead indicating that Aisha had stayed in the area for at least some period of time after she was seen on the highway, law enforcement and the community buckled down even harder on the search of the surrounding area. Their first order of business was looking for any signs that there had been any kind of struggle. But according to ABC News, there was nothing. No blood, no evidence of any car accidents. There was nothing. The Shelby Star reports that they went as far as to search every single house in the neighborhood, which makes it seem pretty clear that the neighbors were ready and willing to cooperate. Homes are private property, which means that you either need a warrant or consent to search them. Every single one of them were, and there was no indication that Asia had been in any of them. 
With that, the search outside of the neighborhood expanded. The outlet reports that within one week, they covered a two to three mile radius around Aisha's home, walking shoulder to shoulder to make sure they didn't miss a thing. They checked the woods, fields, abandoned homes, old wells, police set up a checkpoint, brought out more dogs, and even searched on horseback. But after seven days and 9,000 man hours, the Shelby Star reports that they found nothing. There were even hundreds of possible sightings reported, but when tracked down, none of them wound up being Asia. No one was about to give up on finding her, so what was once a two to three mile search radius expanded to 26 miles. Knowing Asia had been in that shed and clearly had to have left it, law enforcement had to consider how. Did she leave in a vehicle or did she leave on foot? The outlet reports that detectives went as far as to buy an exact replica of Aisha's shoe down to the size and made molds of the prints and copies to hand out to searchers. If Aisha had so much as left a footprint within 26 miles of her home, they were going to find it. But they never did. After covering as much area as they could, law enforcement called off the ground searches and focused on investigating from another angle. A nine-year-old wouldn't have been able to evade law enforcement on her own in the cold with just a few of her favorite things, so someone else had to have been involved. It was just a matter of who. The interview process was extensive, starting with family, friends, classmates, and school staff, the kind of people who would have possibly overheard Asia talking about someone new or talking about going on some kind of trip. But they didn't stop there. Law enforcement also interviewed clerks at local convenience stores, which is brilliant. On the off chance she was alone, she would have needed food and water. If she had gotten into a vehicle, willingly or not, that vehicle would have had needs, specifically gas. One thing we have to constantly remind ourselves is that this happened 22 years ago. It was a time before everyone had ring and home security cameras, but convenience stores likely would have, and there just so happened to be two nearby, one just over a half a mile north of her house and another about two and a half miles south. If those convenience stores had cameras, maybe they saw Asia. And even if they didn't, they could still give police a good idea as to which vehicles were seen coming into and going out of the area around the time of her disappearance. Detectives worked every single angle and followed every lead they could. While they were doing that, Asia's family stopped at absolutely nothing to get the word out. They put up billboards, handed out flyers, and even went on the Montel Williams show. America's Most Wanted and Oprah also did segments on her disappearance. Aisha's case was getting national media attention, but even with all of that, there still didn't seem to be any developments in her case for more than a year, until August of 2001. A website called Actus Roy's did a really thorough and cited timeline of Aisha's case, but the detail we're going to talk about next was linked to a citation that wasn't listed anymore. Since we're in the business of giving credit to the people who work extremely hard to report on these cases, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that based on previous reporting, it likely came from the Charlotte Observer. If I'm wrong about the source, please feel free to correct me. On August 2nd, 2001, a man in Shelby was digging an access road to connect to Highway 18. From what I can tell, it looks like it might have been for a driveway, but nonetheless, while he was digging, he found a black trash bag. According to the outlet, for whatever reason, he felt pretty uncomfortable about it. I mean, he did find a black trash bag buried in the ground off of a highway, so that tracks. 
Knowing he'd have to deal with the bag at some point, he eventually decided to open it and inside found a black and beige backpack. Like most backpacks do, they have a place inside where you can write your name and some kind of contact information. So he wrote down the name and phone number written inside the bag and took it home. It sounds like he wasn't sure what to do with it, but there was something bugging him about the whole situation. So he showed his wife the name and the phone number and her true crime heart sunk. She recognized the name and told him that that was the little girl who'd gone missing a year and a half prior. The backpack was Aisha's. According to ABC News, Aisha's backpack was found 26 miles north of her home off of the same highway as that shed. I want to take a minute to remind everyone that those initial media reports on the ground searches for Asia specifically stated that the search area stopped at a 26-mile radius. Is it a coincidence? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Using basic reasoning here, I think we can all agree that it's extremely unlikely that Asia walked 26 miles north after making it a mile south of her house to that shed. And if she defied all probability and had done that, she almost certainly wouldn't have made that track just to wrap her backpack in what some sources report as multiple black trash bags, dig a hole, and bury it. That would make no sense, so it was pretty clear that something nefarious had happened. The location of Asia's backpack and how it was found opens the door to some key discussions. If Asia had been taken far, far away by some unknown stranger, what are the chances that they'd come back to the area just to dispose of evidence? That seems like it'd be a really stupid move. Is it more likely that whoever did this had been in the area all along? That they knew the ground search had already ended at the 26-mile mark and figured that no one would find the evidence buried in the dense woods off of Highway 18? Police were pretty tight-lipped at the time that the backpack was Asia's, but eventually did confirm that it was. The contents of her backpack, however, were kept confidential until the 20th anniversary of her disappearance. If I had to guess, they kept this information to themselves in case someone slipped up and revealed some information they weren't supposed to know. But after 20 years, they needed all the help they could get. Usually, I try to keep everything in chronological order when we cover cases, but in Aisha's case, we're going to group the subject matter together to try and keep everything organized. So, let's talk about what they found inside. Inside of Aisha's backpack, the FBI reports that they found a new Kids on the Block shirt and a book. The book was Dr. Seuss's McElligot's Pool. Even though the FBI's press release says that the book was checked out from Asia's school library, they explicitly state that neither of the items belong to her. If you have several questions, you're not alone. So let's start with the shirt. The FBI posted a photo of it, and it's white with pink sleeves and pink trim, had a picture of the band singing on stage, and some stars at the bottom. It should be no surprise that I fell down a new Kids on the Block rabbit hole that lasted about four hours. According to the interwebs, New Kids on the Block got together in 1984 and broke up in 1994. Aisha was born in 1990, so she would have been only four years old when the band split. I went through about 1,100 New Kids on the Block merch listings and wound up finding three that matched the shirt found in Aisha's backpack. To be fair, the one in her backpack had a little more pink trim than the ones that I found, but otherwise they were the same. 
According to one of the listings, it's a one-size-fits-all sleep shirt. The stars on the bottom of the shirt said, World Tour, Hangin' Tough, 89 to 90, sold out. Below the photo of the band, there was some fine print that had a copyright symbol followed by 1990 Big Step Productions. According to Trademarkia, that trademark registration was filed on May 21st, 1990. We know that the shirt didn't belong to Asia and had to have likely been made after May 21st, 1990 and before the band broke up in 1994. So let's make some assumptions about New Kids on the Block fans in 1990. Don't fight me, we're not getting ugly. Based on my childhood obsession with Dream Street, let's go out on a limb and guesstimate that most New Kids on the Block fans were females, say 10 to 20 years old. Well, according to the Department of Juvenile Justice, 75% of perpetrators of 2011 stereotypical kidnappings were males between the ages of 18 and 35. I know Asia went missing in 2000, but I was looking for some pretty specific statistics and that was the closest I could find. I don't want to brush off the fact that a male certainly could have owned that shirt, but if not, where did it come from? Who was the original owner? I highly doubt it was purchased for Asia, a small child, six years after the band broke up. This sounds like an obvious observation, but whoever put it in her backpack had to have had access to it. So what male had access to that specific throwback New Kids on the Block sleep shirt in 2000? And who's missing that shirt now? Since we're on the subject of clothes, it sounds like there were some other belongings in Aisha's backpack that haven't been released to the public, but I found a report from the Gaffney Ledger that says that there was clothing found in her backpack that did belong to Aisha, but that being said, the outlet reports that none of the clothing found matches what she was wearing when she disappeared. So as far as we know, that is still missing. Moving on to the Dr. Seuss book, we know that it came from her school library, but we also know from the press release that neither the shirt nor the book belonged to Asia. They don't know who checked it out because the library records don't go back to 2000. If my memory serves me correctly, when I was in elementary school, we had that card system where we'd check out books by writing our names and checkout dates on a little piece of paper that we'd hand to the librarian. That card would go back into the book once it was returned, so it wasn't a digital process. If this book wasn't checked out by Asia, but it did come from her school library, it sounds like whoever checked it out, whoever put it in her backpack, had to have had access to the library in the first place. Very rarely are child abductions perpetrated by strangers. They're more commonly acted out by family members or acquaintances. So someone with access to the same school library as her would almost certainly fall under that acquaintance category. Now that we've talked about what was in her backpack, let's talk about the fact that it was found buried and wrapped in black trash bags. Getting rid of evidence is a choice. Obviously, someone made a choice to put these items in her backpack and bury it. But if you were trying to destroy evidence, why wrap it in something that's going to preserve it? Was burying it the plan all along, or was that a secondary thought? Maybe secondary to throwing it into an actual trash can? If it was in a black trash bag as opposed to your standard white kitchen trash bags, they would have concealed the backpack from being seen by anyone looking into said trash can. It just seems really strange to go to the trouble of wrapping the backpack in trash bags if they had planned to bury it all along. If it wasn't wrapped in the bags, the dirt, rain, and any kind of plant life growing in the ground would have degraded the evidence and possibly made it harder to determine that it was even Asia's. But that's not what they did. 
Their actions essentially preserved the evidence that they went through the trouble to try and hide. I don't think anyone can explain the thought process there, but it's strange enough to point out. The discovery of Aisha's backpack was a huge deal, and you'd think that it would have led to more substantial leads, but her case seemed to go quiet for another three years before there was any breaking news. In November of 2014, Snopes reported that an inmate at the county jail made some kind of report to authorities that prompted what the Charlotte Observer says was a four-day search southwest of Asia's house. The search was a pretty huge undertaking and even utilized an entire backhoe, but in the end, the only thing found were animal bones. Another seven months went by until the Charlotte Observer reported that a new tip had come in that sent law enforcement on yet another search. The Cleveland County Sheriff's Department, the SBI, and the FBI were seen digging at a site that had been cleared back in 2002 for a supposed church build that never wound up happening. The outlet reports that this search wasn't as extensive as the one back in 2004, it didn't include any backhoes, but for eight hours, law enforcement sifted through dirt and were seen leaving with two bags full. I haven't found any information about the outcome of what they took with them, but there was no report of anything of evidentiary value being found, so I can only assume that nothing came of it. After the search in 2005, there was an excruciatingly long wait for any updates in Asia's case. Ten years. In 2015, the FBI reports that Asia's case was reinvestigated and in doing so, uncovered a new lead. In 2016, WBTV reported that someone made a tip to law enforcement that their co-worker might know something. That something was that Asia may have gotten into a green car on the night of her disappearance. This wound up being a pretty big deal, and the outlet reports that through the legwork of the sheriff's department and the FBI, Aisha very well may have gotten into a green car, either a 1970s Lincoln Continental Mark IV or a Ford Thunderbird with rust on the wheel wells, which is insanely specific, and I have to wonder if it came from some kind of photographic or video evidence. According to the sheriff, the vehicle in question had been occupied two times on the day of Aisha's disappearance and is considered a vehicle of interest. Law enforcement asked the public to come forward with any information, no matter how big or small. But again, it seems that as of yet, the release of the green car tip didn't lead to any major breaks in the case. Unwilling to give up for even a single second, in 2017, the FBI's Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team went on a 10-day mission in Cleveland County to uncover anything they possibly could. According to the Independent Tribune, they offered investigative, technical, analytical, and even behavioral analysis support. It was a massive undertaking, and it doesn't look like their assistance stopped after the 10 days was up. Between 2017 and 2019, when the article was written, the outlet reports that the Sheriff's Department, the SBI, and the FBI had a meeting of the minds several times a month and conducted over 300 interviews. The most recent update in Asia's case came in 2020 when an inmate named Marcus wrote a letter to the Shelby Star stating that Asia had been murdered and that he knew where her body was. 
This was a pretty big deal, especially considering the fact that Marcus had a criminal history that included kidnapping and sexual offenses. I ran a report and found two different offense dates. The first was October 27, 2009, where he was charged with first-degree kidnapping and second-degree kidnapping. The second offense date I found was November 23, 2013, where he was charged with attempted first-degree sexual offense with a child and indecent liberty with a child. According to the North Carolina Department of Public Safety's website, he was convicted of the second-degree kidnapping, attempted first-degree sexual offense with a child, and indecent liberties with a child. He was given a sentence of 13 years and 10 months to 21 years and 8 months in prison. At the time of Aisha's disappearance, Marcus would have been just two days shy of his 33rd birthday. I found two addresses for him that were pretty close to Aisha's home, one five and a half miles away and another just over six and a half miles away. Both were relatively close to that 2004 search site. Now, Marcus reached out to the media and not to the police, so it was possible that he was just attention-hungry versus him having some moment of decency. But it was a bold statement to make, and the police needed to follow up on every word of it to see whether or not he was telling the truth. It took a while to nail down an interview with Marcus due to what Journal Now says was a COVID outbreak in the prison he was housed in, but eventually they did, and by February of 2021, the Sheriff's Department announced that it had all led to nothing. I looked into where Marcus was today and when he might be getting released, but the North Carolina Public Safety's website says that his last movement was death. Aisha's case is a mystery that has tugged at the hearts and minds of North Carolina and frankly the entire country for 22 years. Aisha would be 31 years old today, and her parents have never given up hope that one day they'll find their daughter alive. They still live in the same exact home just in case she comes back. If any detail of Aisha's case rings a single solitary bell for you, be it the photo found in the shed, her backpack, the new kids on the block shirt, the library book, the green car, or anything else, please contact the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office at 704-484-4822 or the FBI at 704-672-6100. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Aisha's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.